Welcome back, everybody, to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. I've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I'm really excited about it. I started a new series called We've Lost the Plot, in which I hope to recover some of the great biblical stories. Why, you might think. What a waste of time. Well, for one thing, it's, um, it's a passion of mine. It's an interest of mine. I've sort of broken up and gotten back together with the, with the Bible like dozens of times. It's my tradition. It's what um, has it's it's been an element that has brought me thus far. And what's interesting to me is that the stories keep returning now in new ways, stuff I never heard before. Even though I spent much of my my life, my professional life, my personal life, looking carefully and listening and trying to discern and interpreting and during, do, uh, I don't know, doing hermeneutics and uh, language studies and, you know, moving to Israel and trying to, to do a deep dive, I find that I have barely scratched the surface. And one reason why that's the case is because the Bible, the one currency in the Bible is archetypal. It's archetypal, symbolic, and metaphoric, meaning it goes all the way down into the psyche, all the way down into the soul, all the way down into the deeper realms of reality. And it also, at the same time, speaks to the transcendent, like the Buddhists say, a finger pointing toward the moon. The finger is not the point. If the Bible is a little like the finger, the moon is the transcendent, the other, the great otherness of, of all things, of reality or of God. And... That's kind of the hidden currency of the Bible. I love that even even um, the name of God, so to speak, in the Hebrew Bible is unknown. Sometimes it's Elohim, sometimes it's Yahweh, sometimes it's Yahweh, Elohim, which is kind of a, with a hyphen in there. And then dozens of other names. It's a, it's a way of saying whatever the mystery is, we cannot name. And maybe you've heard the Jewish tradition that they didn't even know how to pronounce the name of God by the time you got to the first century, meaning Yahweh, that particular way of addressing. So they just said Adonai, sort of master or Lord or, I don't know, the nameless. So the Bible's full of hidden mysteries. And here's here's an analogy. I think, well, at the um, at the oracle in Delphi, Apparently there was an inscription, and I've, I, by the way, been to this temple in Greece. It's incredible. It's it's very remote and very hard to get to. Even today, it's very mountainous. It's very high up, and there's a small city, and in this city was an oracle, and the idea was that you could go to this oracle and ask her a question or questions, and maybe something like, and I'm using my imagination a little bit, but What's the meaning of my life? What am I to do? Um, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune have dealt me these cards, and I'm unsure what to do. And the oracle was spoken to that, and, and uh, the records that we have of that, she did so very mysteriously. Which, how else are you going to answer the big questions of life? There's not an answer. You point to mysteries. And one of the things that's surprising to me was that across the top of the temple, on the entrance to the temple, 
was the phrase, know thyself. Now, what a strange phrase to put above a temple that you're going to to seek advice. In other words, I need the external if I'm going to make sense of who I am and what's mine to do in the world. And right at the entrance on the threshold, if you're going to cross the threshold, the liminal space into the oracle itself, the invitation is to know thyself. That is deeply psychologically the case. We know that from depth psychology, that how we see the world out there is a reflection of our inner landscape. You know, we do that through projections and all kinds of other means, but who we are inside is often how we see the world. And what a profound insight the Greeks had 2,500 years ago about, the, about human nature. And maybe we can make an even broader point out of this. If you want to grow up, if you want to grow up into a wiser person, if you want to one day maybe become an elder that has something to give to the next generation, you have to cross the bridge of knowing thyself. And the Church Fathers picks up, picked up on the same theme um, a, a delegation in Alexandria in Egypt uh, went to see St. Anthony, who was a desert father. So this is like um, third century, fourth century. I think it's third century, actually, A.D., common era. And they go out to see this notoriously reclusive, wise, uh, spiritual, almost guru figure with this, and really in a brand new phenomenon, which was this monastic pulling away from culture, which was really more on the edge of culture, but it was definitely pulling away. And they go out to see him and they say, what's the first thing we should do? And he says, know thyself. If you want to grow up, you have to get to know your inner landscape. And there are all kinds of means of doing that. I'm sure you know, some of them at least, but it's no serious matter. You don't know what you're going to find when you dip beneath the ego, meaning the very tip of the iceberg of who you think you are. You don't know exactly what's down there. So it's scary, so you want to put it off. You don't want to go near it. You don't actually, if you're really honest, a lot of the time, want to know yourself. But it's absolutely essential. And any kind of um, kind of basic therapeutic work involves at least some measure of looking back. You cannot know yourself very well without asking questions like, how did I end up here? Who influenced me? What were my passions? What is my story? What are my heartaches and traumas and missteps? How did I end up here? And how much was my choice? And how much was the fate itself, the family I was born into, the circumstances in which no one consulted me ahead of time. Those, how, did the, how did I end, uh, end up here? And it's sobering. And there seems to be a relationship between one's capacity to do that and do that well and charting a new course for their life, discovering something even beneath the story of who you are, what I would call the soul, um, one's unique thread, and living that out into the world requires some measure of looking back. And I think most people would probably agree with at least um, my basic general summary. So if that's the case, why look at the Bible? What does that have to do with anything? Well, I think it's analogous in this sense. If you want to know where we are as a culture, 
as an American culture or as a Western culture, as an English-speaking culture. If you're listening to this podcast, it's in English. If you want to know where we are right now, it requires, I think it's absolutely essential that you turn around, not exclusively, but at least a certain percentage of your time, you have to look backwards. How did we end up here? And to answer that question, in part, you have to look at the Bible. That's my basic argument, because the Bible is part of the foundation of Western civilization, along with Greek philosophy and a few other things, but the Bible is there. No questions asked about that. It's also, one of the things I'm suggesting, at least in this little series, it's also part of the collective Western psyche. The stories and the images and the symbols sit beyond the screen of the ego down in there somewhere. When we hear them, what we're hearing are the archetypally, the archetypal and rich patterns that uh, are the deepest layers of the stories. So they sit in the Western psyche. After all, even like in a most general sense, Abraham leaves his homeland and goes to find the promised land, or Moses leaves the Egypt and sets out for the promised land. He doesn't make it. He dies on the way. That is the American story. And I am not making it up. We used the Bible to justify the way we did that and why we were doing that and who inspired us to do that. We used the Bible, meaning um, Europeans did. So even, even on that level, it's worth paying attention to. But I'm not just interested in history here. What I'm interested in personally are the deepest layers of the story. I heard Richard Rohr say recently that the deepest spiritual truths are told in the simplest of stories, which is why um, there's a whole industry, the whole Disney industry is really founded on the simplest of stories, little legends and myths, because there are profound truths hidden in there. How else are we going to talk about the truth that then through metaphor and symbol. And again, I'm not against scientific language at all. That is a way of talking about the truth, but even mathematics is, has a kind of symbolic quality to it. Does two exist? Does the number two exist? Is it a real thing? No, it's a symbol. So that's part of the, um, even the terror of consciousness that we ultimately have limitations in the way we approach ultimate truth and meaning. And those limitations force us in the direction of symbol. And I think the Bible is full of really, really rich symbols that give us deep insight into human nature and into how human beings have pondered the divine. What is the divine? What is a, di what is a divine life? What is the relationship between the human and the divine? What is the relationship between the divine and nature? What is the relationship between humans and nature? What is the relationship between human beings? All these are, um, are part of the biblical narrative and tradition. Now, I feel like it, I'm trying to get you to be a fan of the Bible. I'm not even asking a fan. In fact, um, oftentimes the stories that are the most repulsive to you, like, ooh, I really do not, like, I was with a friend last week uh, on, on a little vacation, and she said, I cannot stand the story of Abraham and Isaac. I cannot stand it. And I thought, all right, then there's something there. 
There's something there personally. There's something there culturally. And who can stand it? Who can stand a God that would say to a father, take your son and kill that son? You know, and, and even as a test, even if you say, oh, he was just kidding, you know, he was testing. How can you handle a God that would test someone like that? So that kind of evocative and dangerous um, story is meant to get under our, our skin. And um, yeah, so anyway, you don't have to 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 be attracted to these stories and say, definitely, I hear the truth in there. In fact, you might hear something different like the truth is definitely not there and I say both are worth paying attention to that's actually how stories captivate our our imagination and the deeper streams that need our attention so wow that was what a that was a long intro I hope you heard something helpful in there what do I want to talk about I want to talk about the Tower of Babel and if we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel we got to talk about Noah, and if we can talk about Noah, we got to talk about Cain and Abel. In other words, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And, and the reason why is because someone actually sent me maybe a tweet or something that said, what about Tower of Babel? And I thought, hmm, I don't know. I, I haven't, it's not like I've been just sitting around thinking about it. And actually, as, as I sort of examined my own uh repertoire of of teachings I don't think I've ever really taught on the Tower of Babel and why not and then I read the following headline I was scrolling through my phone and I read this headline and the headline was something like this markets shaky after nuclear tensions between India and Pakistan Okay, so the big news item is that the markets are shaky because of the possibility of global nuclear disaster. And all of a sudden, I it, it sort of, you know, cut, cut straight through me. And I thought, yep, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. So I want to read... A little bit from the story it's very very short again uh, deep spiritual truths are sometimes told in the simplest of stories and the the Tower of Babel takes place after the flood story so there's a sort of global catastrophe a flood and humanity and creation kind of starts over it's kind of a recreation story it actually has some of the the exact same phrases used in Genesis 1 and 2, creation phrases in the recreation story around Noah. So here we are. We're kind of, we're starting again. There's been an apocalyptic collapse and renewal of all things. And sure enough, human beings are, are back at it again. And it says, now the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So it's given a little bit of context. We're talking about east, and this is, if we use our imagination a bit, uh, if, the, if the book of Genesis is really a, a book that's coming out of the land of Canaan, east is Mesopotamia, most likely. So they say to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Also, a little hint of uh, what kind of time period we're talking about. So, from archaeology, you might say 3,000 B.C., f even 5,000 B.C., 
This is a time period of mud bricks. And uh, they used they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So the culture has a kind of anxiety that has to do with their own mortality, has to do with being scattered, has to do with being obliterated. We might say the culture is facing the existential angst of being a human being and, and being a culture. And obviously a sophisticated culture, sophisticated enough to make mud bricks. That's a complicated process, requires um, agriculture and making molds and... Uh, for the for the bricks themselves, agriculture because they packed straw in, they mixed straw in with mud, and of course the sophisticated nature of building a structure that reaches up to the heavens, like the Mesopotamian ziggurats did, which are sort of it's like the Mesopotamian version of pyramids, and these were very massive structures, and and I think the 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 writer here is hinting to those kinds of things in the past, hinting to the past of mud bricks, probably when this is being penned, it's. They're, usually, they're probably building with stones. They're so saying, in the, in the old world, in the old days, when we used to just walk to school, kind of the feeling is, um, they tried to build a tower to the heavens. And the culture, and this is really a cultural story, in, at least in my mind, is tasting a bit of that, of the angst of just being alive and being mortal. And there's almost a kind of longing for immortality in this so that our name will last forever. We will not be scattered. We'll remain united. We'll be forever the nation on top, period. So let's build a structure. And then it says this, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. So God's there. He's checking it out, walking around the city. The Lord said, if if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So, by the way, this is thematic in other stories where gods, the gods or goddesses don't want the human beings to be to have fire, for example, or to have a certain this have the same wisdom as the gods, because um I don't know, they'll, they'll be as great as, as the gods are. So there's a, kind of a little thematic hint of that sort of thing. And, and you might ask, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being able to do anything? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. And then it, um, he continues here, come, let us, there's that plural use of, um, sort of hinted at in a word like Elohim, which I talked about, in previous podcasts. So let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So you could say really simply, the Bible's trying to explain different languages, which I won't deny that. It's trying to pr provide some kind of story, but that's way too simple. If it was just a, a matter of they wanted to explain why the, why the, their neighbor spoke a different language, why create a story like this? Why why tell a story like this? There's obviously much, at least in my mind, much more going on than just trying to explain languages. And it says, So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. 
That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. So, what does this have to do with nuclear weapons? What does this have to do with this news item that I read this week? I, re I remembered that the rabbis had a, have a certain uh, interpretation of this story. And when I say the rabbis, it's kind of a general term. You can, you can um, by the way, in the NIV First Century Study Bible, which, is, which I'm the editor of, I um, wrote the notes and articles in there. I have some footnotes for this kind of stuff. So if you're interested, track that down and you can, you can get some footnotes. Um, but the rabbinic world was not single-minded. The rabbis say the Torah has 70 faces. So you can look at it 70 different ways. And, and kind of amazingly, I think Judaism preserved um, the richness of, of well, what did they preserve? They, they, they actually elevated the status of the Bible by saying you can interpret it in various ways. It speaks on many labels instead of being fundamentalist and reducing it all down to a single idea, single meaning. The point of the story is, amazingly, Judaism and the rabbis in particular said, that's not what we're going to do. It's perfectly legitimate to say this and also this. And sometimes they don't, they don't, always, they don't always agree, which, which means we're entering a conversation. And the conversation is a conversation about meaning. What do we think this means? Not, did it happen? That's ir irrelevant on one level. I mean, it might be an interesting question. Um, is, does this story have any kind of historicity to it? We know there were ziggurats that were built in Mesopotamia. But once you go down that path... First of all, you don't go very far. You say, well, maybe, but it's just not that interesting after a while. The more interesting question is, what's going on on the symbolic level? What is it telling us about the nature of being a human being? So the rabbis say this. They say, when the Tower of Babel was being built, every time a human being fell to their death, no tears were shed. But every time a brick fell and smashed, the people would say, woe unto us, and shed tears, saying, when will, when will we have another brick? Who will make us another brick and when? So they're grieving and crying over the work of their hands at the diminishment of human life. And that, I think, insight cracks open this story and cracks open the nature of human beings and, the, and, and the, the nature of human culture and what it's capable of. It's appearing into the darkness of human culture, of society, of what we're actually capable of doing. It's saying this is what cultural uh, idolatry looks like. The worship of buildings and objects as if um, the preservation of the work of our hands assures us that we will live forever, that we are like God, that we are God. That's idolatry. And idolatry is actually, I mean, it's, it's an old word. I mean, we think of little statues and stuff, but an idol is simply in the most simple sense, anything you bow down and worship that's not real. Or you could say anything that you bow down and worship that has a dark side and, 
in this in this case the rabbis are saying and the dark side is the diminishment of human life you end up worshiping the work of your hands at the cost of human life which is exactly the headline markets are shaky because of nuclear tensions between India and Pakistan it should read global nuclear collapse the death of millions of people plants animals and ecosystems and biospheres is at stake period that's the headline that's the more human centered humanistic um and i think um truer to the nature of reality and in this case the more spiritual way of reading reality uh, or you could even say the more biblical way of reading reality so anything we put our hands to and build up into a god and then bow down and worship is an idol and that's what i think at least is being hinted at in this story that the thirst for immortality the thirst for making a name for ourselves the thirst for a market that serves us costs human blood. We ought to be open to that as a possibility. And again, I'm not making any claims like markets are bad or, or even capitalism is bad. I mean, um, capitalism is capitalism and it has a very, um, it has a dark side and it, and it has a light side, like all things, like all, like all, like anything that is human made, like anything in our culture has a dark side and a light side. But what we tend to do is push the darkness down and praise the light and praise the markets as if the markets are the things that are worth protecting instead of Indians and Pakistanis. And not to mention the, the health of the planet. And yeah, <clears throat> now we're, now we're looking at something that I think the Bible um, is in a, in a quaint little story about languages is cracking open for us. Nobody, 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 nobody can look at the 20th century and say, well, you know, human beings aren't really that bad and left to themselves. Um, it'll all just kind of work out. No, there's a darkness and the darkness isn't just personal. I'll come to that in a second. The darkness can be cultural where a whole culture might gather around the making of bricks at the expense of human beings in the quest for immortality and for fame and notoriety and <clears throat> that your name will be on every building in every country of the world. Um, or think about, uh, think about Europe and Germany, uh, this kind of um, the anxiety that came of our name has been diminished in World War I and we got to get it back in World War II and at what cost? How do we do that? And the means and the devil's in the details and, and the, the means and mechanisms reveal just how dark um, human beings and cultures can be in their thirst for building things and making things and serving what it is that they've constructed. Yeah. So um, if we're going to talk about culture like this we got to back up and talk about Noah and before that we got to talk about Cain and Abel because um, it, I, I again I wanted to do some kind of a, a general overview of these stories I, I encourage you to read them see what see what repulses you 
see what interests you see where your your what sparks your curiosity where might you say well this is like this um the the, the stories are free um actually open up a kind of freedom. I know the way the fun, that fundamentalism sometimes treats the Bible is that you got to read it this way and it has to mean this, but one's experience of reading it is anything but that. Hearing a story or or um, um, maybe maybe some of you have practiced Lexio Divina, which is uh, a, um, a kind of a sacred way of reading the Bible, but anytime you do it, and, and you can do it with a single verse, if you're in a circle, let's say it's a group Lexio event and, and uh, or sort of experience, and someone reads a verse, and the invitation would be something like, what word or phrase stands out to you? Let's just go with the word. When a group of 20 people, you read a, a parable or a, or a verse or a story, and you might get as many as 20 different words. Uh, our imagination and our autonomy and, the, and what's going on for us internally comes to the surface. And that's a, that's like an, a, a beautiful and amazing thing. But anyway, um, kind of a cursory overview here. Something is being stacked up here. And I'll try to be as simple and as plain as I can be. So the opening, uh, the opening chapter of Genesis is saying it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. Creation is good. Nature is good. And in fact, every single thing in the natural wor world is a word of God. That's amazing because God speaks and order comes out of chaos and light and darkness and stars and oceans and, and the sun and the moon and birds and fish and and vegetation and male and female and it's all good 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 it's all a word of god you want to know i mean it, the bible is really saying if you want to know the word of god read the natural world it is an expression of the divine in some sense which at the end of that you might think awesome great it's all good then comes chapter two and the other ancient hebrew narrative because these were probably two different traditions for one thing and suddenly we are confronted with what happens when human beings become conscious. And when they realize, when they come up out of the womb of nature, out of the womb of Eden, into the stark light of consciousness, we realize, oh, it's not just good. There's a dark side to consciousness itself, to nature. Nature isn't always your friend. And um, just like, uh, and, 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 the, and the conscious awareness of one's own mortality. And so up out, so we go east of Eden with, um, with Adam and Eve and find ourselves in the world where there's suffering and there's consciousness of suffering, where there's work and sweat um, and moral consequences and actions and autonomy. And we think, uh, can't we just go back to the garden? And the story says something like, no. Like it or not, you cannot return to Eden. You can't. 
In fact, God the divine is going to put an angel with a sword that will cut you to pieces if you were to try, try to return to this, um, to this unconscious state. Like it or not, you are east of Eden. And it's kind of a blessing curse kind of thing. Um, it's good and evil. Because in the, in the sort of the pre-conscious world of Adam and Eve, what would love mean? So they're partners. But if there's no possibility of betrayal or heartache or pain, um, how do you even know what, what, how do you even know the beauty in, uh, of love itself and of longing? You don't have longing. So consciousness comes with the terror and the beauty of, of, of existence itself, where I will find out what love means with the possibility of betrayal. Which, which leads us right into the story of Cain and Abel. So really, um, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and we have this kind of, to use Jewish language, the yetzer hara and the yetzer tov. This means the inclination to do good and the inclination to do evil. We have both. East of Eden, there's goodness. It, it is still good, 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 and, um, and there's evil. And, uh, and super old-fashioned, no one wants to talk about these things. No one wants to talk about... Um, really, we want to ignore it. I guess there, there can be two extremes in our culture. One is let's just pretend everything is awesome and really we're all just gods and goddesses and there's no shadow. And if we could just get back to Eden and um, get back to our natural states, then all would be perfect. That's a temptation. Or the other extreme where actually human beings are wretched, they're terrible, um, God hates them, and we can't trust anything out of the mouth of any human being in this kind of very dark, narcissistic, and nihilistic view of humanity. That extreme doesn't seem to be helping either. So, so it's somewhere in the middle. And anyone who has kids knows what I mean. <laughs> Here's the most beautiful uh, creature that has ever come into my life, full of light and goodness and beauty and terror, darkness, manipulation, um, backstabbing and cheating and lying. It's there. Welcome to consciousness. Uh, yeah, so, okay. Now I'm going to see if I can do this uh, Cain and Abel and Noah thing relatively quickly. <laughs> By the way, it's just simply not true that our culture is becoming more and more stupid and and well, <laughs> I take that back. Parts of our culture are becoming more and more stupid. But um, the general belief is that, that you know, people have the, a seven-second attention span. I remember I first started li listening to Rich Roll um, a few years ago. Rich Roll is like a fitness kind of ultra-marathon vegan um, guru. Really cool dude. I think he's been on uh, Rob Bell's podcast, or maybe Rob has been on his. I can't remember which. Any, anyway, I started listening to his his podcast a few years ago when when the word podcast wasn't even a, a very popular word, and his were two and a half, three hours long. It's like who listens to this? And I realized, oh, a lot of people. And I think people are ready for depth, and they're ready for a more extended conversation. They're sick. I am sick to death of sound bites. They just simply don't mean anything. We have to go into levels of complexity and layers. With all that said, I still will try to do a little overview of Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. 
And here they are out in the world doing things. And interestingly enough, one is uh, a farmer, Cain, and Abel is shepherd. So it's kind of setting up that shepherd-farmer tension, which runs through the rest of the Bible. Um, And actually, it runs through all ancient cultures, because the agrarian life and the shepherding life were at odds. You can't have sheep, you know, coming in and mowing down all your crops right before the harvest. So there was, um, in fact, it says in the Bible that that shepherds were detestable to the Egyptians, it tells you that the Egyptians were an agrarian-based culture, which makes total sense. They're right on the Nile, and they have unlimited water. And they didn't like shepherds because they're nomadic. They move around. Their flocks might come in and destroy things. So anyway, you've got this Cain and Abel ancient tension. That's one level. You have the level of just tension with your brother. And anyone who has a brother knows there's tension, or sister for that matter. Sibling. Sibling rivalry is as ancient um, as their, as consciousness. So who's acceptable and who's not? And in the story, Cain brings forth sacrifices, which are vegetation, vegetables of some sort, and Abel brings forth meat. And interestingly enough, it says Abel's sacrifice was accepted. And we don't know why. You can guess. You can say, well, you know, uh, God likes sheep. Well, I don't know if that's really the case, because even in when religion begins to be formalized in the Bible, bringing fruits and vegetables is part of the religious ritual. So it's not like God's only a carnivore or something like that. Oh, he just loves his meat, kill it and grill it, and he mocks vegetarians. No, that doesn't seem to be the case. But we don't know why. Maybe on one level, the the story is saying something like the dawning of consciousness also involves some measure of injustice, of unfairness might be a better way of putting it. Life is fundamentally unfair. And sometimes your brother succeeds and you don't. Sometimes you could even say, no one likes this, of course, God likes one thing better than another. We say, oh, that's, that's not fair of God. Well, I mean, well, but, but life is like that. We all like some things better than others. Actually, some things are better than, than others. There does seem to be a hierarchy of, of, of even values. So, Cain is stuck in the middle of this, and and it might be saying something like, this is going to happen to you. And maybe you could even say Cain and Abel are two sides of the psyche. And you have a side of the psyche that feels accepted by God. Maybe this is the original goodness side of the psyche, knows what to do, um, and goes about goes about business kind of in walking with God. That's a, that's a phrase of, of Noah, I think. Noah walked with God. Maybe that's a bit of the Abel side of the psyche. And then there's a side of the psyche, Cain, that's uh, suspicious and trying to please and can't quite do it. Um, and then very quickly, it turns straight to anger. It says, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And these are this is a pretty good translation. I'm, I'm using the NIV here because the Hebrew is something like that. And, and it may even mean he's depressed. He's angry and depressed, which tells you something. You're going to get angry and you're going to get depressed. If you are alive, you're going to get angry and you're going to get depressed and you're going to get upset when someone succeeds and you don't. That's the way it, it's going to happen. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live with this dynamic. And this is what um, what God says to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? By the way, no explanation of what 
God mean? I mean, what's the right thing to do to, to offer uh, meat? I mean, is it that, you know, is God like a fundamentalist? Just obey the rules. But there are no rules at this point. There's no preceding chapter that says how to do any of this stuff. It, it almost forces the question of, of maybe even a personal autonomy on Cain or, or, con, or uh, having a conscience. You know something in you know and you can speculate and say well maybe Cain brought like a bunch of crappy stuff and was like well I really like you know I'm going to take the worst of my barley over there but that's all speculative we don't know but there's a dimension where God is asking if you do what is right you'll be accepted so do that the question is what is that and that kind of doesn't get answered in the beauty of of the Bible not tying up all the loose ends and then and then and then God says something very interesting to Cain, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Again, not the most popular of words. In fact, I, in some of the most progressive Christian circles, I've heard something like, we have to eliminate the word altogether. It's completely meaningless. It's completely useless. It doesn't serve. It only serves to increase shame, guilt, and fear, and we got to get out of that as the primary a mode of religion and there's some some measure of that that I agree with that fear particularly being at the very center of reality or at the very center of the relationship between human beings and the divine I do think that has to be combated but sin all sin means is to miss the mark and in that sense what's wrong with that now you can say well I don't like the way the Bible divides up between this is a sin and this is not a sin and and the and I agree that, you know, the, the Bible is also a book that is deeply embedded in a particular culture, that's deeply embedded in a particular worldview, that's deeply embedded, even if you're, like, if you're a fan of Ken, Ken Wilber, in a certain uh, stage of consciousness. It's very mythic. It's very mythic, magical, um, which is an earlier form of consciousness. And consciousness evolves. So what's my point? My point is... I personally am not against the idea of missing the mark. It means there's a name, there's a direction, there's a, a, a way that you even know in the story. Cain knows he ought to go, but he doesn't. It's like Paul saying, I know what's right, but I can't do it. I know what I ought to do, but I don't. Yeah, that is part of the human experience. That's my experience. I'm a, I sin. I miss the mark. I, I do not live into the fullness of my own potentialities or if you want to use the you know kind of the um, spiritually popular language my best life my full life my the life I was born to inhabit I do not inhabit much of the time I totally miss the mark and sometimes I do it on purpose meaning I bring consciousness to it I say ah, I should really do that nah F it I'll just I'll suffer the consequences later and I don't do what I had to do. So anyway, that's, a, a, I think, a, almost a kind of earth-shattering statement here by God. Sin is crouching at the door. That means there's something even behind the anger and behind the jealousy and behind the hurt and the suffering of not being accepted. So it's one thing to be angry. It's one thing to be depressed. But there's even something behind that. And it's crouching at the door. And it wants something from you. And I think it, 
I would I, I would even from a psychological point of view um, or even a, a, a biological point of view, I think it's important to, to at least go down into the level of the instincts, fight, flight, freeze, have sex with it. These very primal instinctual reactions. I'm not exactly calling those sins. There's nothing wrong with them. This is just part of being a human being, but I'm saying acting instinctually, and we're going to see in a minute, violently in the world is to miss the mark. And so God says, sin is crouching at your door. And it says, it desires to have you, which is exactly what a complex, to use psychological language, a complex is is like. It comes up out and it takes you over. It, It desires to have you. It desires to be fed. The complex desires to be fed in the way it wants to be fed. That wounded child, that victim, that whatever, whatever, um, complexes you wrestle with. Um, it feels like it comes out, out of the dungeon, like a hungry, uh, starved lion devouring you. Yeah. It's crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And I, I barely heard this even in my fundamentalist Baptist culture. I mean, sin was something that, that Jesus was going to take care of on the cross magically with, with his blood. Um, not something I needed to master. Now, that wasn't the only message. I mean, um, I guess in a way we were told, do this, don't do this. And you can, you have some measure of autonomy. But I, I, I find that line kind of surprising. What do you mean you can rule over it? Yeah, uh, part of the invitation of consciousness is you are going to feel these um, lion like desires that not only will come up and devour you, but might devour everything in its path. And you have some responsibility to rule. Um, same word is used in Genesis, by the way, about, about uh, human beings relationship with nature. Uh, and I already talked about that. So you can take some of what I said there, if you go back and apply it here, it's more like a King kind of image. And you could say a benevolent King, you don't have to rule your own instincts like a like a tyrant. Um, courting them, getting to know them might also at times be in order. But what what's going to happen to you if you refuse the responsibility of, of engaging these darker or shadow-like qualities? And that's one way of reading this story in a contemporary 21st century way. Here's the shadow. What we don't know about ourselves is crouching at the door and it will rule over you. It will, it desires to have you. That's the phrase. Um, that's the shadow. And um, Ken, Ken Wilber, of course, I'm a big Wilber fan, says the major work in the 21st century, the major contribution of psychology and depth psychology in the 21st century is to help us deal with the shadow. What we deny, repress, and don't know is a part of who we are. And and here, I think there are hints of it in this story that is, who knows how old? 5,000 years old? Maybe older? Um, so let's, there's a, there is a wisdom tradition here, and that's that I think is worth listening to. So, so Cain said to his brother, let's go out to the field, man. Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, 
why the hell would anybody want to read and contemplate and dwell on the fact that the first brother brothers in the history of humanity in this sense uh, um, involved murder the 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 dynamic between two brothers the very first brothers on earth one brother kills the other why would the Bible start? Why would the Bible say it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, and human beings have the capacity, the yetzerhara, the inclination to do evil, and and how evil is it? One can murder their own flesh and blood. The the people who are closest to us, in case you fool yourself about the nature of human beings, the people close to us, we can end up hurting the most in this case murdering yeah so it's like not exactly good news you 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 wonder why um <laughs> you wonder why the culture wants to run from the biblical stories yeah because we want to run from that possibility we don't want to run from the shadow we want to run from the personal shadow here and i think that's what the Cain and Abel story is about um it's pointing to toward a very personal archetypal capacity that we all share it's not about culture at this point. It's not about other people. It's not about finger pointing. Something of Cain we all carry. Like it or not. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And how might we be in the world? And is there another way to be in the world? And he, and, and, and at this point, God curses Cain and, and sends him out. And he says, it's too much for me to bear. And people are going to kill me if they see me. And God marks him. He marks him. He says, no one will, will kill you as you move out into the world, even if they know what you've done. And so it's almost like saying we live with a kind of mark. We're marked by something. I just thought about Harry Potter. Like um, there's a kind of darkness that he's marked with from birth. And that darkness is in the depths of his own soul as well. And it and and any kind of hero figure has that zigzag, has that mark. Um, and Cain is Cain is um, maybe invites us into the stark reality that there's no such thing as a superhero. There's no such thing as doing it right. There's no such thing as as um, as a human being um, that is without the inclination to do evil. In fact, that's just part of the nature of reality. So lesson one in Cain and Abel is this darkness should be taken seriously and it's crouching at the door and you must engage in a dynamic relationship or ruling, as the Bible would say, ruling with it. You have to take it seriously and do something about it um, and bring increased consciousness to our capacities lest we live in a kind of blind naivety and just want to return to the womb of Eden where everything is okay. Let me go back to mama's womb where I'm fed through an umbilical cord and I don't have to think. Sounds nice. It's just impossible. Okay, so let's, um, let's try to move to the no story because I'm trying to say there are sort of three unfoldings here. The first is personal with Cain and Abel. That the shadow or the darkness, um, I just thought Dylan, it's not dark yet, but we're getting there. So <laughs> this is like uh, the Bible sort of un unfolding the possibilities of, of human darkness. And so the first is personal, um, that you and I carry the capacity to murder our own 
brother. And to deny such a thing is naive. And it's crouching at the door. And maybe even, I actually like the idea of that uh, Cain and Abel uh, exist simultaneously in the psyche. Something of the one who, who, who is accepted and knows what's right and does what right, what's right and the side that doesn't. And the, maybe the, the resolution isn't one or the other, but we live with these tensions. And the more we're honest about these tensions, the more we're honest about um, who we are, and maybe even um, the easier it is to, to aim correctly in life then. To set out and say, I know my warts, I know my faults, I know my capacities, and I know my capacities for, um, for goodness and for gold and for light, and I'm, I want to aim in that direction. So the Noah story, I, I think I've talked at least a bit about, um, it's an apocalyptic story, uh, and it's, um, it's a Mesopotamian story, meaning there are other flood-like stories in Mesopotamia that have similar... Uh, themes to them that something's gone wrong human beings have gone wrong in the world and even something's wrong with nature and there's a cataclysmic flood and disaster and a renewal it it and what's that saying symbolically it's saying very simply that there is a big cycle a birth um death rebirth cycle or a life death life cycle or or the building up of, of culture civilization and the collapse of culture and civilization and then um, a rising up from the ashes. It, there is a phoenix-like quality to reality itself. And we know that even from um, the history of the earth before human beings were, were even around. We have cataclysmic, um, natural, we would say, disasters that are a little like an apocalypse. A total collapse and then something uh, emerges in the wake of that and that's the flood story and uh, and I think we live in a flood like time and I think it's interesting that so many floods and natural disasters are, are happening it pulls us back into the Noah story and there are times when every single person in the culture says it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen there will be no apocalypse there's no collapse and they stick their head in the sand and there are only a few people that say no I have a different vision um, and I'm gonna build a boat toward that vision that's a bit of the Noah story That's a bit of the Noah archetype you could say and I'm not so much interested in that right now. I'm interested in the darkness of humanity, <laughs> this threefold darkness, so personal. And here we have our first expression of it culturally. And this is what it says in the Bible. Uh, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God, which totally different orientation of faith, by the way, in the Hebrew scriptures versus maybe the Christian tradition where we tend to think about faith as beliefs. It's much more of an action in, in Hebrew and in the Hebrew narrative. So walking, how do we know? Well, he walked a certain way. He, he embodied a certain way of living in the world that was like God or with God in this sense. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. That's the, the phrase I'm interested in. So, um, big time overview here. Not only are human beings capable of personal violence, that's Cain and Abel, but the culture is as well. And the whole culture can turn toward the violent. God saw how corrupt the earth 
had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So you could say this is an exaggeration, and, and again, I don't think questions of historicity are all that interesting. Uh, at least they're not, they're not to me. Did this really happen? And was this a literal flood? And uh, we've entered the world of of um, sacred stories, and they were not read that directly in, in antiquity as was just trying to describe a series of events. They're they're meant to point out the symbolic quality. So we have to ask questions like, what does this say about about what culture? can become. It's one thing for a person to murder his brother, but what if the whole culture turns toward violence? And I think a little bit of Hebrew is is in order here. The word is Hamas. That's the word in Hebrew, and it has a couple different meanings. Hebrew is a great language because it's what scholars call a poor language, meaning one word can mean multiple things. Arabic is a little like that too, although I don't personally know Arabic. Um, but my friends who do say words can mean multiple things, which, which makes translating anything at all very, very difficult. Even the Quran, you know, when I hear people in English deriding the Quran saying, well, the Quran says this, well, we've entered the complex world of interpretation and same with the biblical narrative. And so anyway, the word is Hamas and it means something like straight ahead violence. That's one expression of it. Or it can mean the lack of justice. And I think that's an interesting a nuance. So it's not just like violent rage, but a lack of justice. That has a cultural component toward it. Not only was are they describing a kind of culture of violence, but a culture that he's not even interested in writing that. Because let's just face it, injustice is going to happen. Even nature has an element of of it being unjust. Like my dad got ALS. What did he deserve to get such a terrible disease? Uh, you know, you, you want to shake your fist and say, it's, it's not fair. And yeah, you're right. It's not. But what happens when a, when a culture intentionally turns toward violence and injustice and says, well, some people get sick and I don't care anymore. And so I'm going to create a society and a culture that seeks my interest and my aims and isn't, does not have in mind the other uh, members of society, particularly the weakest members of society, the ones that suffer under Hamas. But here are some other interesting uh, nuances. It also can mean falsehood or deceit, lying, in other words, that there seems to be a relationship between what God does not like in the story and um, violence and falsehood. And the way I think about it is it probably starts the other way around. It starts with the lie and ends with violence. That's the story of World War II. It starts with a lie about, um, about what makes us human and our fundamental uh, equality and um, just by virtue of being a human being and racial and, and, and ethnic. It starts with a deep spiritual... Uh, denying the deep spiritual insight of our fundamental unity as human beings, male and female, who created them, uh, or everyone is born in the image of God saying that is not true. And it ends in violence. So I just want to say, you know, a, a culture and a political system that lies and lies and lies and lies and lies and lies. The Noah story is saying very directly there, there is a relationship between that and violence. So don't be surprised when the whole culture turns in and on itself and violence erupts. 
So that's Hamas. And um, the, uh, the JPS, this is the Jewish Publication Society, um, they have a great commentary on, on, the, on the Hebrew here that um, I have been using for many, many years and continue to turn toward any time I have a question about the Hebrew and the nuance. The JPS says that it has the, the, the Hamas has the, the, the Hebrew has the intention of something like this, arrogant disregard for the sanctity of human life arrogant disregard for the sanctity of human life. And there's a sense where, um, and, and you might not like the concept of God here or the image of God that appears, but God is like, enough. We can't have, we can't have a world like this. And there's a recreation. Um, that, which, by the way, is a common theme in many ancient stories where the gods say, enough of this, human beings are... Um, are, are destroying themselves and the earth, and there's a, a starting over again. So that's a bit of the Noah story. What I'm interested in here is Hamas. So it goes from the personal anger, depression, and what lurks beneath that, and in this case, a violent act toward, toward the brother. And of course, God says, where's your brother to Cain? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? It's not my responsibility. Do I, do I have to watch out for him? Isn't it every man for himself? You know, that's that's Cain's response, which is low-level consciousness. And followed by the possibility that the entire culture can be sucked into the same kind of violence through deceit. Which is, again, dark. It's not dark yet, but we're getting there. And then there's a cataclysmic flood and a restarting, and that's not, you know, the Bible's very, very interesting because... There's a restart, and right in the restart, Adam's, own, or I mean, excuse me, Noah's own family is a mess. It's a wreck, um, and in a way, it doesn't even work. You know, this kind of um, I want a clean slate doesn't even really appear to work all that well, which leads us to the Tower of Babel. So you have personal violence, you have the possibility for collective violence and arrogant, arrogant disregard for the, for the sanctity of human life rooted in a lack of justice and deceit itself mixed with the culture's capacity for immortality where they end up worshiping the work of their hands, the market, the buildings, the cultural structures, the institutions, the external form at the disregard of human life itself. So, I don't know what are we, <laughs> what are we supposed to conclude from all this? I don't know. I don't actually. I think that's probably the wrong question. What do you hear? What stirs in you? What are you resistant to? What is the Bible trying to challenge about who we think we are in the world? And if you go back to my original sort of metaphor. Um, how do we end up here? You know, um, how, how do we end up here as a culture? And in a way, um, is the Bible, uh, at least the way I see it in this sense, it's um, with the Tower of Babel, it's saying, wait a minute. Uh, what is it that you're worshiping as a culture, as Americans? What are you really bowing down to? Um, and... Uh, you might think of yourself as the, the saviors of the world and the morally upright and pure nation, uh, but don't kid yourself. 
that's that's a little of what um, Genesis 1 through 11 is talking about, which is, yeah, human beings are complex and they are deeply worthy and uh, good and there's a divine spark in the heart and soul of every human being and, and in the Genesis story, everything on earth and human beings also carry within them these capacities for darkness and we ought to take them seriously and and I think now more than ever there's so much suffering so much unnecessary suffering in the world um, there's so much um, like the ostrich putting putting our heads in the sand I don't know if that they really do that I imagine they probably do um, they do in the cartoons not wanting to see what is in plain sight and not wanting to deal with it, ignoring, maybe even hoping technology will fix all things, rather than looking um, at both the golden side of our humanness and the beauty and the light and also the shadow and the darkness seems to be the invitation of Genesis. Don't fool yourself. Deceit, um, well, maybe we could take it in order. Anger can lead to depression, which can lead to murder, which culturally uh, can lead to violence and injustice and, and, and massive deceit, which culminates in a kind of anxiety and a thirst for immortality. If we could just keep this thing together, we will live forever and our name will go down in history. Um, meanwhile, uh, at least according to the rabbis, uh, men and women and children are falling to their death in the building up of this facade. Now, to me, that's a story worth listening to. That's a story worth um, contemplating. That's a story that confronts. And that's probably the Bible at, it, at its best. It confronts. It fires an arrow in, in our direction. And it can cut right through uh, who, who we think we are and who we think we are as a culture. And maybe one more, one more piece here, since I made this podcast so freaking long. Um, I think there is, in a simple way, the Bible is also saying that um, part of the evolution of consciousness, I'm interpreting because the Bible's not, it's not obviously saying talking about the evolution of consciousness is just telling stories. Um, but one of the things that seems apparent about the evolution of consciousness is that because of these capacities, we need laws. We need things. And, and, and by the way, if you look at the, the Noah story very carefully, there are seven laws in there. Let me see if I can remember them. Um, and they're kind of hidden. This is more of a rabbinic thing that they call it the Noah, Noahide commandments. And probably the early Christians probably followed followed some of these at least, um, but they're sort of like the commandments before the commandments, the commandments before the Ten Commandments. In other words, societies in particular, because of our capacities for Hamas and deceit um, and anger and the possibility of killing our brother when things don't go our way, we need some laws. And I think the seven no no Noah laws are like: don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't commit idolatry. Don't steal. Imagine a culture that um, 
Imagine the terror, absolute terror of living in a culture where at any moment it was perfectly fine to have what you thought belonged to you taken by someone. So don't steal. Um, I think don't curse God's name or blasphemy or something like that. Don't eat meat with blood in it. That for sure is in there. That's direct and obvious. You have to read the Noah story to to find it. By the way, that's, again, a symbolic hint at um, the sacredness of life itself. It's not just uh, uh, don't eat a rare steak or something like that. Um, and it's much it's much deeper than that. And then and then the seventh, which is the most interesting, I think, which is right in the Noah story um, at the end of the flood, uh, it says establish a court of law. That's the way the, the rabbis take the phrase. Um, if you take a human life. Um, hold on, let me see if I can find it, actually, because it's now that I'm thinking of it, it's really interesting. Um, it's not going to sound like create a a court of law at first it says um where is that let me pause i found it found it it says whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed now on face value that sounds like hey if you murder someone you're you know it's like an argument for capital punishment then it then that phrase is followed by for in the image of god god has made humankind so there's a sacredness to human life, which is, uh, in the story, God is trying to reestablish with Noah and his descendants. The rabbis directly say, well, that it doesn't really work that way, because if somebody kills somebody and they kill somebody, and then, you know, pretty soon everybody's dead, if you follow it that literally. But it's, it's saying, all right, if human beings do this, human beings have to come up with a system that deals with these consequences. Anyway, I'm not asking you to necessarily um, buy the rabbinic interpretation of this phrase, but um, it is pretty obvious that in the story it's saying you have to deal with this. And so some measure of organizing society to limit the possibility that these lions will come up out of the, the the dungeons of our more instinctual and darker places and devour everything. It's saying something like we need something of a tradition, something of, of some laws and some order to, to help make society safe enough. Now, that's not an end in and of itself. That simply helps us grow up to a certain extent. It's not the, the final stop on in the evolution of consciousness we must keep growing but it's also can't be bypassed that's that's sort of what uh these stories are saying and right now we live in a world where there's so much spiritual bypassing i could say i could do a whole talk on this but it's basically saying something like we don't need any tradition we don't need any wisdom we don't need any laws we don't need anybody telling anybody that what they do is wrong or right or healthy or unhealthy. We can bypass all of that, go all the way to transcendence, and everything is just presence and union and oneness and light. And I say that um, doesn't look at the world. Look at the world. Um, and it's, it's something like a, a both hand. Something like a both hand. So anyway, that, that's what I got today. 
that was um, number three in this little series. We've lost the plot. It was a long one. If you made it this far, well done. Well done. Send me a tweet. Send me a Facebook message if I check it. Send me a um, an email through my website. That for sure I'll read. If you have ideas, questions, comments, stories you'd like to see see us wrestle with, uh, anything like that, again, thank you for listening. Podcasting is such a weird and interesting medium, and thanks for being a part of it, and I wish you all well. Peace.